Welcome to episode five of the Climate Money Podcast with me, Susan Sue. I'm a climate investor and a climate mom looking to keep up with the headlines and always wanting to learn more. On today's episode, we talk about climate deniers, the mental models that do and don't fuel their denial, and what it has to do with climate money. We also discuss two important food labeling updates and what they mean for our transition to a cleaner, lower carbon, and lower cruelty food system. Last week, we talked about AI's climate footprint and how the rapid rise of energy-intensive data centers could actually become a massive climate opportunity, and how the EU is upping its subsidy game as a way to fight for its place in the global climate economy. If you missed that episode, you can always go back and give it a listen. But in the meantime, let's jump into this week's episode, where we'll kick off with climate deniers. Now, whenever someone not working climate finds out that I'm a climate investor, there's inevitably a moment where they want to know what to do about all the climate deniers out there. My typical response is to point them to the incredible longitudinal research by the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, compiled into a series of reports called Climate Change in the American Mind. This research is comprised of a series of comprehensive surveys and has revealed what's now pretty common knowledge, that America is divided when it comes to climate change. But it's not divided exactly in the way you would think. The six Americas, as the YPCCC calls them, are six distinct psychographic segments that range from alarmed to dismissive. Specifically, the segments are alarmed, concerned, cautious, disengaged, doubtful, and dismissive, with this last group representing your quintessential climate change denier, and the first group, the alarmed group, representing most of the folks working in climate and listening to this podcast. Rather than presenting ideas around climate change as a binary, you're either really upset or you're a flat-out denier, the Six Americas adds nuance that we can work with. For example, in the 10 years since Yale first began this research back in 2013, one of the most important findings is that the alarmed group is the fastest growing, and it's pulling population from every other group, but most especially from the folks who are in the cautious group, that's the undecided group in the middle, and to a much lesser extent from the doubtful semi-deniers, though almost not at all from the dismissive outright deniers group who seem to be pretty stubbornly at about 11% of the U.S. population. The Yale data is an absolute treasure trove for anyone working on climate in any way. And if that is you, you should definitely get familiar with its details, including, for example, the important insight that the majority of Latinx and Black adults in the U.S. are in the alarmed or concerned groups, are significantly more likely to be alarmed or concerned than white Americans, and are highly unlikely to be doubtful or dismissive. Women are also more likely than men to be alarmed or concerned, but the delta there isn't quite as impressive as the one between BIPOC and white respondents. This is very important to understand as we're thinking about audience targeting the narrative and the products we're putting out there to address the climate crisis. So what I always say in response to the climate denier question is that yes, they exist. But no, they're not as numerous as you would think, and they're losing membership. But some recent research sheds new light on the mental models driving and not driving climate denial, 
with direct implications for climate money. Researchers at the University of Bonn and the Institute of Labor Economics ran an experiment with 4,000 adults and found that among those people who deny or downplay climate change, money or having a vested interest in planet-destroying industries or being personally implicated in climate-threatening practices is not a driving factor in denial. This finding went against the researchers' own hypotheses and runs counter to a somewhat common-sense belief that the reason why people are deniers is because we find it easier to live with our own climate complicity if we don't let ourselves believe that climate change is actually happening. In the study, the study population was divided into four groups. They're called belief main, belief control, demand main, and demand control. Now, the two demand groups are more focused on interactions with media about climate change and did yield interesting but less surprising results that we're not going to go into depth here. Instead, we're going to double-click on the two money-focused groups, belief main and belief control. In the study, both of these groups were given $20 that they could donate to one of two climate nonprofits. It was up to the study subjects to pick which. But in belief main, the so-called treatment group, the subjects had one other option, which was to keep the $20 for themselves. Based on the phenomenon of motivated cognition, where what we choose to believe is influenced by our own desires and motivations, the people who took the option to keep the $20 should have demonstrated more climate denial beliefs. Now, motivated cognition is a well-tested phenomenon that has been extensively studied and proven out across everything from consumer behavior to political beliefs to healthcare. So it should hold up here as well, if in fact, it's a contributing factor to denial. But that's not what the results showed. Instead, the study found that motivated cognition did not play a role in climate denial. In the study, there was no correlation between keeping the $20 and denying climate change. There also wasn't a correlation between keeping the $20 and being of any specific income bracket that might make the $20 more valuable to a given study subject. Instead, the proportion of people in both groups who exhibited climate denial were the same. That is, the first group that could donate $20 to one of two climate nonprofits and the second group that could donate or keep the money for themselves, and by the way, 40% of study participants chose to do so, had the same rate of climate denial. Now, how exactly did they measure climate denial in the study? They asked participants after the donate or keep decision to guess how many scientists out of 100 doubt that human activities are the main cause of global warming. The researchers hypothesized that people would distort their beliefs or their estimate to this question in the direction that most validated their decision to keep the $20. But this wasn't the case. Instead, when you look at the graph of guesses across both groups, which I'm including in the video version of this episode, it looks the same for both groups. Now, why are we talking about this on a podcast about climate money? I chose to highlight this study because I think it raises some really important questions. There's a belief, almost an ideology, that climate change denial is perpetuated by profit. On the flip side, many of us in the climate money world have thought or even publicly posited that if we can bring people with us in the climate transition economy, then those people will become climate advocates. Underlying both of these ideas is that self-interest drives not just behavior, but belief. 
But the University of Bonn study challenges this assumption. Now, why does this matter? In the climate money world, we've believed that including climate-unfriendly red states in the economic opportunities inherent in solving climate change will turn detractors into promoters, to borrow from NPS or a net promoter score language from the world of marketing and business building. Now, net promoter score is relevant here, so let's do a little sidebar on it. NPS asks your customers to rate you on a scale of 1 to 10, with only scores of 8 and above being classified as promoters of your business and any score up to six as an outright detractor. And yes, that's more than the halfway point. NPS is grading on a curve and it's a very tough rating. And yet it's often viewed as the gold standard in assessing whether your solution is working for its target market or not. I've seen it on countless pitch decks and I've personally agonized over it in the startups I've helped to build. But NPS has a dirty secret. When it comes to mapping to actual customer behavior, NPS doesn't always hold water. And we can illustrate this with a simple example that many of us can relate to. For example, our NPS of Uber might be low after a series of canceled rides on a rainy day, which sometimes happens, or following a misdelivery of a meal order. But will we still use Uber again? Yes because the service and solution it provides is so singular that even detractors are pulled begrudgingly into its marketplace. In other words, you don't have to be a fan to be a customer. And this is what brings us back to climate deniers. Many in the climate world have hypothesized that Texas being the country's largest renewables producer, or South Carolina being the nation's newest EV battery hub, or South Dakota or Louisiana opening up their oil and gas walls for carbon sequestration, will change both politics and public opinion around climate action in those regions and eventually in the world. Let's have everyone make money and we'll get rid of all the harmful rhetoric challenging scientific consensus and slow rolling climate action. But according to this study, self-interest and by extension personal profit isn't enough to touch the deeply ingrained and often political and identitarian underpinnings of climate denial. So are we stuck? I want to suggest an alternate reading. Going back to the Uber example, what's worth more? A vocal promoter who doesn't ride or a detractor who's a loyal customer? I think the Bond study is ultimately incredibly hopeful because in showing that you don't have to profit from climate destruction in order to oppose climate action, it also suggests that you can be part of climate action without changing your beliefs. This study's core finding is that when it comes to climate, beliefs and behaviors aren't as closely related as we thought. For those of us in the climate movement, it's an exciting opportunity to ask ourselves, if we had to choose, do we care more about changing beliefs or transforming behavior? It may be that the increasingly numerous red state renewables and DAC workers never join the ranks of the alarmed about climate set, and maybe that's okay as long as we all keep doing the work, whatever we want to call it. Now, this is in no way an apology for climate denial, which I fully view as obnoxious and very damaging. But I'm also a realist who recognizes that it is intractable. After all, even the six Americas data found that the denier America is one of the only two groups that's resisting change. The other one is the disengaged group, and that is a discussion for another day. Instead, I view this as a sign of hope 
and inevitability for the new climate economy that will affect and involve everyone, whatever their stated beliefs may be. All right, on to our second and third stories, which are connected to each other and in some ways to our first story. A new result from the Understanding America study shows that consumers are more likely to choose lower carbon intensity plant-based food products when they're labeled as healthy and sustainable versus vegan or plant-based. For background, the Understanding America study is a panel of households put together by the University of Southern California that's comprised of 14,000 respondents growing to 20,000 by 2025 and meant to represent the entire United States. In this study, participants were asked to choose between a gourmet food gift basket without meat or dairy products and one that did have meat and dairy products. The no meat, no dairy gift basket was labeled in one of five ways vegan, plant-based, healthy, sustainable, or healthy and sustainable. Now, the baskets that had healthy and sustainable, and especially both healthy and sustainable labels, had doubled the uptake over baskets labeled as vegan, and a 50% higher uptake than the ones labeled as plant-based. And these findings were consistent across all demographics, but most marked amongst people who identified as red meat eaters. The study echoes previous studies conducted elsewhere that found that terms like vegan, vegetarian, and meat-free actually repelled meat eaters and are thus counterproductive in the movement to get more people to adopt a lower-carbon, flexitarian way of eating. The biggest takeaway from this study and the ones that have preceded it is that labels matter and that marketing can go a long way towards driving adoption of climate-friendlier options. Going back to our first story about climate deniers, Belief is only important insofar as it drives behavior. So what if you could achieve behavior change by harnessing different beliefs? Like ones that something is healthier, cleaner, or more sustainable, whatever that means. That leads us neatly into our third story for today. In a significant development, Singapore's Islamic Council has ruled that cultivated meat can be labeled and marketed as halal. The Islamic Religious Council of Singapore has issued a fatwa, which is a legal opinion issued by a qualified Islamic scholar or cleric, declaring that cultivated meat is generally halal, and Muslims can eat these products as long as they adhere to halal standards. In the Singaporean decision, the council specifically ruled that cultured meat can be halal if the cells are sourced from animals that Muslims are allowed to consume, for example, chicken, but not pork, and there's no mixing of non-halal components like alcohol in the manufacturing process. Now, while halal refers to what is permissible in Islam, it's most often applied to food. For food to be halal, it has to meet a host of standards covering ethics, hygiene, and avoiding pork and avoiding contamination with things that are non-halal, like the aforementioned alcohol. What's notable here is that halal foods have been on an absolute tear in the last few years. Global spend on halal food is projected to hit $4 trillion by 2028, about double what it was in 2022. By 2031, the halal meat market alone is projected to hit $375 billion. A lot of this is driven by Muslim consumers, but not all of it. For non-Muslims, halal food products are coming to represent higher standards in food safety, hygiene, and health, 
which are all factors that matter for consumers most likely and willing to pay premiums for certified or otherwise special label foods. Because it's actually pretty hard to be certified as halal, halal food products have evolved from being a dietary choice underpinned by religion to a label that signals food safety and hygiene more generally and even carries health connotations. Research indicates that non-Muslims have a positive perception of halal food products and show their own purchase intent around halal based on its reputation as a better product. Now back to the Singaporean ruling. Why does this matter? Well, we know that Singapore is making major strides in becoming a global capital for the future of food. It was the first country to grant regulatory approval for production of cultivated meat back in 2020, and it's the only country where it's legal to sell cultivated meat, even as actual purchase or procurement remains a challenge. On top of this, Muslims from Asia Pacific, specifically Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia, which is the world's largest Muslim population country, consume up to 90% of the halal foods and beverages in the world, which makes sense because Asian Muslims make up most of the global Muslim population. But still, 90% is astonishing, and it's a lot. So there could be a real market amongst halal consumers when these products actually hit the market at scale. But the more interesting thing around this announcement was how the council arrived at it and how the results were delivered. The religious council, called MUIS, first conducted a study of cultivated meat supply chains and practices, including the source of the cells, the full production process, and the ingredients used. This type of research provides important validation for mainstream consumers that cultivated meat isn't some scary science project, but is actually a healthy, safe, and clean option. Again, going back to the main attributes commonly associated with halal. When it announced its study results over this past weekend, the Fatwa Committee talked up the environmental and food security benefits of cultivated meat. They also highlighted that the Fatwa was underpinned by the Islamic principles of preserving human life and protecting the environment. Given halal's market growth, but also its positive reputation amongst Muslim and non-Muslim consumers, this stamp of approval matters. And it offers cellular agriculture and all lower carbon food producers a valuable blueprint for how to market products to appeal to what consumers are really looking for in food. Now, I've talked to many future of food entrepreneurs, from cultivated meat companies to plant-based protein companies to companies making cooking oil, coffee, alcohols without agriculture, you name it. Almost everyone, or definitely everyone, talks about cost because they understand that price comes first. But let's say we solve that problem. Even at price parity, you still have to compete in a vicious market for scarce consumer attention and wallet share. Singapore's new halal certification and the food label study we talked about earlier offer us hints at how to navigate that competition and win. When it comes to food, price matters, but so do safety, health, and quality. And there are many paths to decarbonization and even to getting animals out of the food system, which is a worthy goal that I know many in the world of the future of food have. Every story we talked about today pivots around a central theme of messaging. In some situations, like buying food, the message matters, perhaps as much as the dollars. In other situations, like building a climate industry, it's possible that we can get the behavior change we need without the belief transformation we want. 
What's critical in both cases is that climate action can happen without climate messaging. If all paths lead to Rome, and here Rome, of course, is our climate positive future, then we should be sending foot soldiers down every one of them, whether they take us through the forest of verbal climate denial or through the valley of health and wellness. Call it what you want. We're here for the transition. That's it for this week's Climate Money Podcast. Thanks as always for listening. Please subscribe and share if you're so inclined. And see you next week. Thank you.